Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today we have a very special guest, Dr. Um, Jarvis Williams from the Southern Seminary. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Thank you very much for having me. It's a privilege to, to be with you. For those who don't know who you are, could you um, introduce yourself? Absolutely. Well, my name is Jarvis Williams. I serve as an associate professor of New Testament interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. I teach courses related to New Testament interpretation, also courses related to Greek exegesis, courses of particularly Paul's letter to the Galatians and Paul's uh, letter to the Ephesians. Also, specialize in Second Temple Judaism, and uh, my publications, my research and publications focus primarily on how uh, Second Temple Jews uh, understood salvation and ethnic identity formation, and how Paul understood salvation and ethnic identity formation, and I spend most of my time thinking about those issues, and then how, how what Paul says about matters related to salvation and and ethnic identity impact and inform Christians today with respect to racial reconciliation. That's awesome. And that's very much so needed. Um, One of the uh, reasons we uh, chose the topic today, today we're going to, for our listeners, we're going to be talking about um, the formation of the New Testament canon and the lost books. And this is a question I get a lot, um, especially in this uh, postmodern world of people like to attack scriptures and say, well, you know, um, it was man-made, um, not God-inspired. And um, so the scriptures are really under attack, and I thought you would be a good person to help us out with that today. Um, how was how was the New Testament formed? Do you receive a, a lot of criticism on this topic first? Well, I, I one of the classes I teach, I didn't mention, I teach a course called Biblical Interpretation. It's also called Hermeneutics. And in that class, we actually think carefully about the formation of the New Testament canon. And so this is an issue that um, more and more, I think, Christians and, and those who serve the churches need to understand a little bit, because the Bible is is the foundation, really, of everything that we believe. And if you can undercut the Bible, then you, you pretty much lose... Um, the faith that's once and for all given to the saints. So, so it is a question that I often get. And for those who are uh, in different theological circles, a criticism that is offered uh, often offered against people in my theological context would be uh, they would criticize us for for believing in things like inerrancy or or biblical authority. So, this question of canon is is a is a great question and it's also uh, a question that is very controversial but regarding uh, how the new testament was formed this let me just say first of all the the question of canon is extremely complicated and complex so i want to acknowledge that from the outset and secondly i want to also acknowledge that um, i don't think anyone has all of the answers to that question but there are some answers that we can offer to that question the first thing i would say is is that when we think about the, the formation of the New Testament canon, 
we have to actually enter back into the first century period because as as you are well aware of, the New Testament doesn't come down to us nicely bound in crossways ESV translation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there, there was, in fact, a process that, that led us to the point in history where we got a canon and, in fact, where we got a... A, an ESV study Bible. And I think one of the places that uh, the first place we got to go is in the first century and recognize that when God revealed himself to the apostles through Jesus Christ via the incarnation, that that was the point in history where everything that God had promised in the Old Testament found its visual fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And certainly, there are other aspects of what God promised that are yet to be fulfilled, such as the new heavens and the new earth. We haven't experienced that yet. But the point that I'm making is, is that the Old Testament promises are pointing us up to a point in history when Jesus Christ uh, was born and would fulfill those promises. Now, when Jesus was therefore born, he preached, he taught about the kingdom of God, he taught about the gospel, he taught about how, in fact, he was the fulfillment of everything God had promised. He dies, and then he resurrects, and then he teaches again for several days, and he ascends to heaven. After he ascends, as you know, the apostles and the, the, the prophets in the New Testament era began to preach, began to teach about Jesus, and, and they began to write. And so you have the Apostle Paul, who very likely is the author of the earliest New Testament book that was ever written, uh, very likely Galatians is the very first letter that was ever written, written possibly in 48 AD. So you get these letters that were written to churches that were responses, and then you get these gospels that were written, and you get all these books of the, that we later call the New Testament that were, that were written in response to specific situations that had emerged as you uh, enter into an age in, in the Christian uh, movement when uh, more people become Christians and when, when certain theological challenges arise. As you read books in the New Testament, like, for example, a book like Second Peter, it becomes apparent that guys who are writing New Testament letters believe that what they write is on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. For example, in Second Peter, Peter makes a comment about Paul's writings, and he says that Paul's writings are difficult to understand, and he says that, false teachers distort Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures. And that's very, very important when you're talking about the formation of the New Testament canon because you have a statement within the New Testament itself that lends evidence to the fact that these New Testament writers believe that the writings that they are producing for the churches are writings that are to be understood alongside of, and really, in, in, in a certain respect, greater than what you find in the Old Testament because they're writing about the fulfillment of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Okay, now, here's the, the important point uh, in history that, that moves us into this formation of the canon. So the apostles, they eventually die, right? Mm-hmm. And they're no longer around to be able to write letters to the churches, but rather they leave their letters, they leave their gospels behind. And these Gospels and these letters circulate. But, but as you get closer or farther away from the apostolic age, certain things began to arise in the church, such as, for example, you get theological heresy that is trying to infiltrate within the church. Mm-hmm. Certainly you have problems in the first century before the apostles die, 
But at least when the apostles are alive, they're able to write a letter to combat that theological heresy. Mm-hmm. But when they're dead, they're, they're not around to physically refute that heresy. They only have their letters. So theological heresies make the church come to the point when they have to make a conscious decision to acknowledge uh, what books are authoritative and what books are not authoritative with respect to what we are practicing in the churches. So, of course, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, I think, in my view, that canon was fixed in the days of Jesus and really earlier. There was no debate about what was Scripture when Jesus was alive. The debate was what what does Scripture mean? But when you're getting into the New Testament era, the, the, the issue regarding theological heresy and the issue regarding also other spurious letters and Gospels that were written, like the Gospel of Thomas, uh, these other Gospels that pop up in history, that seem to be competing with what you find happening in the churches, require the early church to therefore make specific affirmations of what the New Testament text would be. So then you have these these criteria, really, that the early church began to uh, consider. So, for example, when early Christians, after the apostolic age, were seeking to uh, discern what classified as New Testament canonical scriptures and what, what did not, they had this, this criteria that they followed. Number one, they suggested that the, the book in question had to be written by an apostle or by someone who knew the apostles, which is very important because if you're talking about what is New Testament canon and what is New Testament scripture, you cannot consider a document that was written after people who knew the apostles were, were dead. Uh, so, for example, you have the Gospel of, of, of John written, in my view, by John the Apostle. So he was an apostle. But you have a book like the, book of, uh, the Gospel of Luke, who was not an apostle. That is, that, is, that is the author of the Gospel of Luke. However, Luke's gospel was considered to be scripture because Luke knew the apostles. He had access to people who knew the apostles. Mm-hmm. So we know from the book of Acts that Luke traveled with the apostle Paul. We know from the book of Acts, we know from the gospel of Luke that Luke had, a, had access to eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so then, these early Christians said, we're not going to consider a book to be canonical New Testament unless it was, number one, written by an apostle, and number, or written by someone who knew an apostle. Secondly, they also considered that the document in question could not contradict uh, teachings that you find in, in um, the scriptures that were recognized as being authoritative in the churches. So, so in other words, there had, to be a, there had to be a uniformed teaching throughout the churches in these documents that were, was affirmed by these churches in order for this to be considered to be canonical. So, for example, if you have documents that were late, say written in the second century, and you had documents that were also challenging the resurrection of Jesus, those documents would not be considered to be canonical because, number one, they're written after the apostolic age. Mm-hmm. And number two, they're contradicting documents that were written during the apostolic age in their theological content. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And then another element here that was important was that there had to be a, a widespread usage of this particular doc, document in the churches. So, so in other words, before early Christians considered 
a text to be New Testament canon, they said that the document in question must be used in a widespread way throughout the churches scattered throughout the ancient Mediterranean world. So that's one reason why texts like the Gospel of Thomas and other so-called Gnostic Gospels were not considered. Because these Gnostic Gospels, or the Gospel of Thomas, was a gospel that was not used by a widespread group of Christians, but rather it was used by a, by a little sectarian community that was identifying with a, with, a, with a different kind of movement within the Christian movement in comparison to all the other, other Christian movements. Some would call it Gnosticism, but scholars actually debate whether you, would, you should call it that. So having said all of that, so you have this criteria that, that was in play. And then eventually, as history progresses, you also come to a point where uh, people also recognize what is authoritative based on what the church fathers were citing in their sermons. So church fathers like uh, Bishop Irenaeus, church fathers like um, uh, John Chrysostom, and other church fathers who were preaching sermons and teaching sermons in the churches. One way we try to establish the New Testament canon is to see what these Christians in the apostolic age and shortly after the apostolic age what they were preaching in their churches and we have examples where these church fathers are citing uh, what we recognize to be New Testament canonical scriptures mm-hmm. and, there other, and there are other aspects of this as well and I'm giving you a very brief history here but eventually you know we come to the point in history where we get a fellow by the name of Bishop Ignatius who, who sent this very famous Easter letter um, to churches in, in his community. Uh, and in his famous Easter letter, uh, roughly in the, the 300s or so, Bishop Ignatius records the 27 books that we actually have as New Testament canon as the books that have been recognized in the churches in the, in the ancient world as being the New Testament canon. Now, here's something that's very important regarding Bishop, uh, Bishop Athanasius. Athanasius did, did not write 27, write a letter saying, these are the books that I am recognizing to be the New Testament canon. He wrote a letter suggesting that these are the 27 books that are recognized by the churches. So, there was a, so the 27 books that, Ignatius, that Athanasius uh, wrote about were the books that had been used prior to Athanasius writing that particular letter. And of course, before you get to that point in history, you also have other areas uh, of church history where you have some discussions about what's canonical and what's not canonical. You have um, you know, a couple of, of, of uh, other discussions that are happening. But basically, the process by which we get the canon was a process whereby we, we have the apostles who saw Jesus, and, and they heard Jesus teach and preach. And, and when Jesus ascended into heaven, these apostles wrote letters, and, they, and these eyewitnesses wrote gospels. And then after they died, you had churches that were using their writings and, and viewing their writings to be authoritative scripture. And then you had a decision in history where early Christians had to, to affirm exactly what was canonical and what was not because of these theological threats that were coming from, from other movements within the so-called, um, uh, on the fringe of Christianity. I hope that all made sense. Yeah, 
<laughs> Excellent answer and explanation. Um, I know a lot of pushback I, I get when I'm talking to um, people um, is that, you know, these um, councils that affirmed, because um, I like to use affirm, they didn't, you know, <laughs> They didn't make up this list out of out of nowhere. They were affirming what the early church already accepted as as um, the canon. They were it was highly political um, in these. Can you give us just, um, I guess, a brief list of councils that were critical? And can you kind of like answer that idea that they were, you know, politically driven and they were doing it to oppress a certain people group? Yeah, oh, that's a great, great question. Well, well, one of the things about Christianity, I think, historically is 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 that you got we got to remember this in in the ancient world, religion and politics were not nicely and neatly separated as they are today in the modern in our modern American context. So we have separation of church and state in America. But in the ancient world, religion and politics and all those things were sort of wrapped up in one's identity. Um, so, we, so we need to recognize that in, in the ancient world, it was hard to separate religion from, from politics. However, I'll say this. Um, I, I think it is, is, it's a bit misleading to suggest that uh, a re- the reason why we get the New Testament canon is because you have these uh, political um, Christians who are wanting to drive a certain political agenda uh, down uh, the throats of those in their context for the sake of power. I, I think that's a bit misleading. Um, so, so I so I would argue that that there were massive theological reasons that that moved to the point in history where you had to get to a uh, a decision in the early church that required these Christians to affirm a particular canon. Now, you mentioned some councils related to that question. You mentioned some councils. Um, it's it's not nicely and neatly laid out for us in history as to as to uh how how certain councils or what councils were involved in in this decision making but one particular council that was extremely important was this council called the the council uh, or the synod of Carthage in in 397 AD so we're talking the 4th century which was a relatively small regional council and by this time, by the before the Council of 397 A.D., you already have, you already have a an established and agreed upon New Testament canon. So, so I would argue with this particular council, you 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 don't have them saying this is what is canonical and therefore the canon was created. You have the Council of of, of Carthage saying in 397, these are the books that have already been recognized as the New Testament canon. And so prior to you prior to that event in history, you have some some other Christians who are significant uh in in terms of identifying what is canonical. And I've already mentioned, I mentioned some church fathers, Irenaeus and, and some of the others, and you have some other other traditions. You also have this this other uh not really a council, but it's uh it's a, a canon that's called the the Muratorian canon that is that is Roughly, um, but it was before the Council of of um, of of Carthage. So, so I think probably a significant council is the is the Council of Carthage because it's recognizing what's already been recognized 
as scripture. Some like to mention the Council of Nicaea, which was a bit earlier, but uh, as a as a defining council. But the Council of Nicaea is is interacting and debating about some other things, um, not just about scripture. So I think that Council of Carthage is pretty significant. But but prior to that council, you have um, you have other things happening that are leading us to the point in history where we have a recognized canon. Awesome. Um, I know w- another pushback I get, especially in the African-American community, is this is a white man's book. And I don't think that um, sometimes people understand that, it, you know, it wasn't like a group of uh, white men who who um, who form who formed scripture. Um, and I think uh, what would how would what would you respond to that? Would you would you just say that these people were diverse culturally diverse? Uh, Yes, this is a very, very good question. I think that is one of the myths of um, early Christianity that we need to, whenever we get a chance, try to burst. Uh, It is absolutely incorrect to say that, that white people are the ones who created the New Testament canon. In fact, I would argue that if you look at church history, some of the most influential people in the early Christian movement, were not uh, what we would identify as white, uh, as white, but rather they were they were African. Um, so Saint Augustine of Hippo, for example, was an African. Um, Athanasius, Bishop Athanasius, who wrote that famous Easter letter in 367 A.D. in the fourth century, he had the nickname as the Black Dwarf. Now it's not clear exactly what the particular person meant by black, but but many have suggested that that's a reference to the color of his skin. So so these people in church history who are significant with respect to uh, not only the, the doctrine of scripture, but also some of these other important theological doctrines that we would that we would die for are not uh, what we would call Anglo or white. Now, of course, certainly there are many uh, Anglo and white uh, brothers and sisters throughout church history who have been influential and significant in in uh, maintaining and defending the faith once and for all given to the saints. But the formation of the New Testament canon was not something that a white man uh, orchestrated. This is something that finds its ultimate roots in God and in God's character, who is not a white man, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and, and God, by His grace and by His sovereignty, I believe He inspired uh, both the Old and New Testament, and he inspired the prophets and apostles to write these books. And and then he, he preserved the church by his grace, by his spirit. Uh, these early Christians who, who were representative of particular communities in the ancient world to uh, be able to recognize what was authoritative. And so, so I think that just looking at the, the early church history would speak against this idea that the Bible is a white man's book when you actually see that some of the most influential people in church history in the early stages, at least, in terms of uh, the early New Testament period and then in the, in the early post-apostolic period, they were, they were, they were African, many of them. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I think that's going to be definitely helpful to our listeners because uh, that's a question that comes up a lot um, in our African-American communities. Um, what are some resources for those who want to learn more about the formation of the New Testament canon? That's a great, great question. I think a resource, a good resource that's readable is a book written by one of my one of my colleagues here at Southern. His name is Dr. Rob Plummer, and he wrote a book called 
Uh, I sometimes get the title wrong. I think it's called 40 Questions About the Bible. 40 Questions About the Bible. And in that particular book, my colleague, Dr. Plummer, who's a professor of New Testament, by the way, he, um, he, he goes through the book chapter by chapter, and each chapter is simply a question about the Bible. And one of those questions is, how do we get the Bible? And so he spends time talking about not only the New Testament canon, but also the Old Testament canon. And if, if your listeners would purchase that book, they'd not only get a nice, clear uh, discussion of the formation of the canon, they would also get in that book a bibliography. At the end of every chapter, uh, my colleague, Dr. Plummer, mentions other books that uh, his readers can go to, to to read and study more deeply about the uh, about the particular question at hand. So that's a book that I would highly recommend. Rob Plummer, uh, 40 Questions About the Bible. Uh, another book, which I require, I actually require that book as well, but I also require a book for a class that I teach called Hermeneutics, is a book written by an old scholar named Elf Elf Bruce. Elf Elf Bruce. And it's a book called uh, The Formation of the New Testament Canon. And this book, I must warn your readers, it's a bit more difficult to read than the book by Dr. Plummer because F.F. F. Bruce was writing to, I think, academics largely and theological students largely. But I think if your readers could just be patient with the book and, and just work, work their way through the book, they will see that there is, a, that there is a, a process by which we get the affirmation of the New Testament canon. But then they would also see how there were, there were, de, there were careful decisions that were made uh, and, and thoughtful decisions that were made under God's guidance that got us to the point where we got a New Testament canon. And basically, F.F. F. Bruce traces uh, the formation of historically by pointing out uh, issues in the early church and pointing out uh, issues in the first century, second century, and he traces it all the way through up to the history that I've mentioned briefly today. So that's another book, F.F. F. Bruce, The Formation of the, um, of the New Testament Canon. And another book that I would recommend, this is a book that, that doesn't focus on only the canon, but it focuses on the doctrine of Scripture itself. Because I think when we talk about canon, we've got to also have a discussion about the doctrine of Scripture. Like, what is Scripture? And, and there's a book written by a scholar. His last name is, uh, well, Don Carson is his, is, his, uh, is his name. He's one of the editors of this book. And Don Carson edited, edited this book called uh, Scripture and Truth. Scripture and Truth, as I think, I think is the name of the book. And in that book, he talks about, basically, it's a book about the doctrine of Scripture. And there's an essay, there are essays in the book written by different scholars that talk about what Scripture is, how we, uh, how we got Scripture, the nature of Scripture, and those sorts of things. And of course, there are all kinds of, of books out there, but I think those are three that might be helpful. Rob Plummer's 40 Questions About the Bible, um, uh, F.F. Bruce, The Formation of the New Testament Canon, and then uh, Don Carson's book on on uh, Scripture and Truth. Awesome. Thank you. I actually have F.F. Bruce's book, um, but I'll actually check out those other two. Um, is there anything, Dr. Williams, this has been a, a very rich conversation, and I think our listeners are going to be um, helped by this. Um, is there anything you want to leave with our listeners? I know you have a book out, One New Man, The Cross, and Racial Reconciliation, and Pauline theology how can it you could give your last words and information of how our listeners can purchase the book and how they can reach you on your social on social media as well 
Yes, thank you. I well, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, at Doctor J uh, J Williams, and I'd love for folks to follow me there. Uh, regarding my books, uh, the One New Man book can be purchased on uh, via Amazon. Amazon has it uh, there. Uh, also, two of my most recent books are uh, a book called For Whom Did Christ Die? The Extent of the Atonement in Paul's Theology. And then my most most recent book is a book called Christ Died for Our Sins, uh, which is a book on substitutionary atonement in Romans. They can purchase uh, all three of those books via, via Amazon.com. Uh, and a final word, I suppose I would say, is, is that all of your listeners need to to be encouraged by the fact that the Bible is God's absolute authoritative and inspired word. You can trust the word of God. You can trust that everything that it says is, is speaking the truth. It, and it provides for us everything that we need for life and godliness. And the word of God is, has been tested and it's been proven to be true throughout history. So, so by faith and in the power of the spirit, rest on the complete trustworthiness of God's inspired and inerrant word. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Williams. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it